1 Samuel 15 this morning. We will be finishing up this chapter, verses 24 through 35. For the past several weeks now, we have studied the life of a leader, a man ordained by God into a position of divinely approved leadership. We have seen God's intent for him as a leader, as well as the the tremendous disparity between God's intent and the choices which this leader has made. And now it's time for us to bring to the forefront this issue of leadership. It's time for us to lay down some important principles of leadership that will help us as leaders as we serve God in this world, but also for those of you who are being asked in some capacity to submit yourself to a leader, there's going to be a great amount of information for you as well. We've spoken before of the three God-ordained institutions in society, family, church, and government. Inherent in these three God-ordained institutions is a hierarchy of God-ordained human leadership. Each one of these human leaders is ultimately accountable to God for their rule, but there is God-ordained human leadership in each of these institutions. In the family, the husband or the father is the God-ordained leader. He then delegates certain leadership responsibilities to his wife to accomplish as wife and mother. In the church, the elders are the God-ordained leaders in the church, and they then delegate certain leadership functions to the deacons. In government, the scriptures tell us the king is the God-ordained leader, and this king then delegates certain leadership responsibilities to other members of his government. Now, as we talk about that last institution, we mentioned this as well in Sunday school this morning, um, we can't parallel that as closely in the United States of America as most Bible readers throughout history have been able to do because we don't have a king. We don't have anything like a king. Our, uh, the supreme law of our land is not dictated by a man. It's dictated by a document called the Constitution of the United States and the subsequent Bill of Rights. And because we have this document that is the supreme law of the land and then the document gives a certain set of expectations and then delegates the rest of the authority to the people, specifically to the states. And so we have this unique form of government that kind of creates difficulty for us as we seek to apply the biblical principles of of obeying our leaders in government to the United States government because um, when the leaders are doing that which is contrary to the Constitution, well, does the Bible want us to obey the leaders who are illegally doing what they're doing or does it want us to obey the supreme law of the land and as we mentioned in sunday school this morning uh, much of that will have to come down to the the dictates of your own conscience before god but regardless we see this hierarchy of leadership uh, leadership in government leadership in the church leadership in the family and these are god ordained god designed institutions with god ordained leaders And there are those who are under these leaders, under the authority of these leaders. And everyone in this room is under the authority of most likely all three of these institutions that God has ordained. And what we understand is that leaders, though they possess 
in, in these particular realms in particular, they possess the authority of God in their respective realm. God-ordained authority also comes with God-ordained responsibility and God-ordained accountability. If God has placed something under your charge, God will hold you accountable for what you do with it, regardless of whether or not you want that accountability or you want that responsibility. And this principle has come up numerous times in 1 Samuel, since 1 Samuel 12, 1 Samuel 13. But it's time to set it down clearly for the benefit of all of us this morning. And we're going to begin today by what we might say is finalizing the saga of Saul and the Amalekites. And it's going to be even more than that this morning. We're not just finalizing Saul and the Amalekites. In a manner of speaking, we're we're finalizing the story of Saul. Saul will still be around for quite some time after this point. But this chapter is the chapter where the focus of our text shifts off of Samuel and off of Saul and transitions to a young man whose name is David. And so next week we're going to be transitioning our focus to this young man named David and God's plan for him. And Saul will still be there, but by and large, Saul as the focus of Israel and the focus of the text finishes this week. So let's do this this morning as we begin. We'll pick up in verse 23 for context. And I'll just read it at the moment, verses 23 through 25, and we'll read the rest of the text as we walk through it. Samuel speaking here, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord." Recall last time we were together, Samuel was rebuking Saul for allowing the people to take the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, and then certainly he took King Agag as well. Uh, And the idea of the people taking the sheep and the oxen was that they were going to sacrifice them unto the Lord. However, God had commanded that all of the sheep and all of the oxen were to be destroyed. And uh, God recognized that Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. And in the second half of verse 23, Samuel tells Saul, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And we mentioned last time that it was um, back in in 1 Samuel 14, that his, that Samuel's, excuse me, 13, 1 Samuel 13, that Samuel's posterity was replaced that his children and grandchildren were not going to be allowed to be on the throne. But it is here in 1 Samuel 15 that God rejects the actual rule of, Samuel, of Saul himself, that Saul is now no longer going to be blessed by God and no longer going to be enabled by God to be the king in Israel. And it seems as though this announcement to some degree legitimately gets through to Saul. Notice what he says in verses 24 and 25. Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me 
that I may worship the Lord. There's a bit of a way to go moment here for Saul. And we've had a couple of these in the past several chapters. A, a place where you're reading and you say, hey, Saul did something good here. This is good. Way to go, Saul. Stay on this course. Stay on this track. He acknowledged that he had sinned. He acknowledged he transgressed the commandment of God and of Samuel. He even acknowledged a part of the problem. He said that he feared the people, that he was afraid of the people, and so he obeyed their voice. And we'll talk more about this in the application. And before we we continue talking about what is actually happening here between Saul and Samuel, I want to take a moment to answer this question. You know, oftentimes we read in the text and we see the word sin as we see here. Saul says, I have sinned. And then he says, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And we see that word sin and we see that word transgression. And we might wonder, what's the difference? What's the difference between sin and transgression? Well, that's a good question. And the Bible seems to illustrate a difference between them. And I'll tell you what each one of those words means in the Hebrew and we'll get a little better idea of of what each one means. The Bible uses three distinct words to talk about offenses against God. Sin, transgression, which we see in this passage, and the third is iniquity. While we might think that they can be used interchangeably, and in a manner of speaking, they can, because they're all speaking of offenses against God, they do indeed each have a particular thrust to them. We see in Psalm chapter 32, verse 5, David says this, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Here we see David uh, see enough distinction between sin, iniquity, and transgression that he uses all three in the same context. And this is not a one-time thing. We actually find four times in the Bible where sin, transgression, and iniquity are used in the same verse. More times even where sin, transgression, and iniquity are used in the same context. And in this case, there is clear parallelism. If you look at the words that have highlighted, you notice he goes sin, iniquity, transgression, iniquity, sin. This is what's called in Hebrew poetry a chiasm. It's kind of a big fancy word, but what it means is that there's a pattern here and it's poetic. He talks about sin, then iniquity, then transgression, then kind of backs off again to iniquity, then to sin. And it's supposed to be um, poetic. It's, it's, it's a beautiful structure. In fact, Hebrew poetry never rhymes. Uh, the the uh, Western ear likes poetry that rhymes, but in me- most cultures, um, poetry is a rhyme of thought, not a rhyme of sound. And so we have this beautifully structured thought here, but we do understand that there must be a difference between them if they're going to be used in a way that's not exclusively interchangeable. So let's talk about the Bible's usage. In the Bible's usage, we find the word sin literally to mean to miss the mark. To miss the mark of God's character is what sin means. This would be the idea of uh, an archer. And as he pulls that bow back and he lets that arrow fly, if he misses the mark, that would be a sin as an archer. Now, uh, I don't want to muddy the waters for our young people here. Uh, When we talk about sin in the biblical context, it's missing the mark of God's character, expectation, and will. Uh, So that's the only mark that's missed in regard to uh, sin in the Bible. But the word itself actually broadly means to miss the mark in any 
context. Then we have transgression. And the word transgression literally means to cross the line. And in the biblical context, that would be to cross the line in rebellion against God's word. So in other words, God's word draws lines for us, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. And that's a line that is drawn in God's word. And transgression is when I see that line and I go, and I step into that which the Bible says I should not. That's literally the idea of transgression. And the third word is iniquity. And iniquity means a perversion or a bending or a twisting of the will of God or the word of God in a biblical context. And so iniquity is when we take the word of God and we bend it and we twist it in order to, to justify what we're doing or, or we, we twist the word of God or we twist the will of God and we do that which is not the will of God. And so these are the, the different nuances of the words sin, transgression, and iniquity. And while each is wrong, they do highlight, we might say, different motivations, different actions. And in uh, Psalm 32, uh, we, we don't see it as clearly, but we do in Saul's words in verses 24 and 25 see how the sin and the transgression are related. So Saul says he has sinned because he has transgressed the commandment of the Lord. He says, I stepped over the line that God drew for me. That's transgression, right? To cross the line. Therefore, I've missed the mark of God's expectations. So God had drawn a line and that line was Samuel or Saul. I wonder how many times I've not caught switching those two names over the past several weeks. Saul, here's the line. The line is destroy everything of Amalek. Destroy the people, destroy the animals. And Saul crossed the line and said, I'm going to keep some. He crossed the line of God's will. And in doing so, he says, I have sinned. And then he makes a, a good petition here, a seemingly innocent petition. He asks Samuel to pardon his sin, to turn with him, to stand with him in an act of solidarity and support while he worships the Lord. I had several people come up to me after last week's message and say they found it interesting that in this context of 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul calls the Lord, when he's talking to Samuel, thy Lord. He doesn't say my Lord. He says, Samuel, thy Lord. And that it seems in, in some, to some degree that Saul was either refusing to claim the, the Lord's command there or he was trying to emphasize the fact, well, that's your interpretation of what God wanted. My interpretation is that I could keep Agag and the people kept the sheep and the oxen. That's, that's what I saw. But your interpretation, thy Lord type idea. So we're not quite sure exactly where Saul was going with that. But it did come up with, with several people this last week that that stood out to you. And we see another interesting aspect of Saul's interaction with Samuel here. He wants Samuel to come and to worship with him. Uh, to, excuse me, to, to stand while he worships. And um, this would have been expected by the people. In fact, this is why Saul went to Gilgal, right? Saul always goes to Gilgal when he wants Samuel to meet him. And Samuel meeting him would have been for the purpose of either petitioning the Lord for favor or praising the Lord for that which was done right. And in this case, 
Um, the, the victory was won. Saul goes to Gilgal so that Samuel will come to Gilgal so that they can do this offering and they can, they can praise the Lord. Samuel's response, however, is going to expose Saul's motives. And we'll find that though this, is, this should be a way-to-go moment for Saul, just like every other time that we've had a way-to-go moment, it's actually not quite what it needs to be. Saul's heart is still not quite with the Lord. It's not quite where it ought to be. He's got those pretty words about his sin and his transgression, but what he's really doing here is trying to, in a manner of speaking, manipulate in order to get past this unpleasant rebuke. So notice what Saul says, Samuel says, excuse me, in verse 26. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. So Saul says, okay, I did wrong, I sinned, and that I transgressed against the word of God, I let the people take of, of, of the cattle, I gotcha, I did wrong, now, now turn with me and worship the Lord with me, Samuel. Let's just get this ugliness behind us and let's get back to normal. And Saul, Samuel looks at Saul and says, absolutely not. You have been rejected by God as the king over Israel. I will not be seen in solidarity with you any longer in any context. I will not be shown as supporting, as uh, agreeing with the authority of a man that God has now deposed as king. And notice how Saul reacts. His reaction to Samuel's refusal to walk with him is actually far more urgent than his reaction to Samuel's rebuke over his sin. In verse 27, it says, And as Samuel turned about to go away, he, that would be Saul, laid hold upon the skirt of his, Samuel's, mantle and rent it. So the, the men of that day wore an outer coat and Saul says, Samuel says, I will not go with you, Saul, to worship. And he turns to go away and Saul literally grabs Samuel's coat and yanks and tears his coat trying to keep him from walking away. Don't walk away from me idea. And he is just, his response is so strong here when compared to perhaps he should have been rending his own mantle when the Lord said he sinned. But he didn't do that. But here he tears Samuel's coat trying to keep him there. And Samuel uses this rend as a bit of a illustration. Notice what he says in verses 28 and 29. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. In the same way Saul just tore Samuel's coat, Samuel says, God has torn the kingdom away from you. And using words which would directly expose Saul's self-sufficiency and pride, he tells Saul that God has chosen another man. He has taken his kingdom away and given that kingdom to a fellow countryman, a man who is better than he is. Now, um, for a man of pride and self-sufficiency, like we've seen Saul over the past several weeks, you can only imagine how much that would have d dug at him. A man that is better than I am, 
What is that supposed to mean? Remember a few chapters ago when Samuel was choosing Saul by, by God's decree, the Scriptures told us that Saul was a man that was head and shoulders above anyone else in Israel and that he was a man that was very comely. He was a good-looking man. He was a strong man. He was a tall man. Uh, he was the best of the best. He was the cream of the crop in Israel. And Samuel now says, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you and has given it to a man better than you. What else does that mean? What all does that mean? We're going to talk about that next week when we preach a message uh, on being a man after God's own heart. What it means that there was going to become a man that, that come to the throne who is better than Saul. So settled was God's declaration of Saul's rejection that he specifically mentions it is uh, a purpose which, for which God will not repent. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what it means, the, the idea of God repenting. And it doesn't mean that he made a mistake. Uh, he repented early in, earlier in this chapter. And in this case, the scriptures say this is a purpose for which God will not repent. That Saul has no chance here of restoring himself to a place of, of kingly favor before God. He has lost the kingdom. It has been rent from him. And there's no changing that. Now, and if you want to remind yourself what we talked about in regard to repentance, or if you weren't here, I encourage you to get online and look at the message from two weeks ago. And uh, it is there online for you at LegacyBaptistChurch.net. Having heard the definitive and irrevocable um, character of Samuel's words, Saul renews his appeal that Samuel would stay with him. Notice what he says in verses 30 and 31. Then he said, that would be Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. This request that Samuel or Saul makes here is at best practical, at worst deeply selfish. Perhaps his motive here was, Samuel, come back with me. Show me solidarity so that the people don't get confused. The people are expecting this. The last thing we need is a revolt on our hands. The last thing we need is for the people to lose confidence in their king. So would you just come back with me? Kind of a morale boosting thing. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is Saul saying, okay, whatever, I've lost the kingdom, but at least allow me to preserve my pride. Allow me to preserve my pride. Come with me so that everyone else doesn't think ill of me because I want to preserve my pride here. And personally, I kind of lean towards that explanation that he's just being proud here and he wants Samuel to validate some of that. Uh, and you say, well, then why would Samuel do it? Well, because Samuel's duty here is not quite done. Samuel has one more thing he needs to do before he leaves Gilgal. We take note perhaps of the fact that uh, verse 31 says Saul worshipped the Lord, not Saul and Samuel. This is what Saul expected. He mentioned several verses ago that he called Samuel to Gilgal so that Saul could worship the Lord. He said it again just in the previous verse in verse 30 that um, he asks Samuel to stay there so that he may worship the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Saul worshipped the Lord. Samuel it would appear, did not worship the Lord with him. So whether that's because he had been rejected or whether that was expected, we, we can't really know. It may not have been anything particularly different or particularly abhorrent. 
Samuel was there. He was presiding over the sacrifice. That's what needed to happen. And so that's what happened. And I mentioned that Saul, or Samuel excuse me, had some unfinished business. I'll be happy to get to David. Samuel and David is so much easier than Samuel and Saul in my mind. I don't, I don't, it's just not working for me. But uh, Samuel has some unfinished business here, right? So let's address that unfinished business before we get to our application. And that unfinished business is a man named Agag. Recall that not only were the sheep and the oxen spared from the Amalekites, but King Agag was spared as well. And this would have been a fairly familiar thing in history to see. Uh, in history, to capture a king, uh, the king then becomes your trophy. Maybe it was so that they could kill him in front of all of your people or in front of your army. Maybe it was so that, uh, as happened regularly, and we see this example in the judges, they could put out his eyes and turn him into a slave for the rest of their lives. And that regularly happened um, where they would either cut off the hands of the king or they would put out the eyes of the king and then they would make him kind of a, uh, a trophy. To, to, they'd keep him alive just to keep him as a trophy for a, a certain number of years. But whatever the case is, the, it was not uncommon for the king to be spared, uh, but it was also not uncommon for the king to be killed. It just depended on whichever way the, the victorious king felt he would get the most honor. And in verse 32, we see the scriptures tell us, Then said Samuel, Bring hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. So Agag comes, and the text says he comes delicately in our King James Bible. If you have a uh, different translation, one that's a little bit more modern, you might see a word there um, that is not so much delicate, but uh, almost proud or cheerfully. And the reason why is because in the Hebrew text, the word in the Hebrew literally uh, means um, to, to come with apprehension, or excuse me, in the, in the Hebrew text, it means to come confidently or come cheerfully. But in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word actually, um, the, the, the translation gave it the idea of coming with apprehension or coming fearfully. And so the King James translators, it would appear, um, tried to find a little bit of a medium by this idea of delicately, so with, with careful caution, uh, but also uh, a little bit of confidence. So he, he thought that there was... Um, that, that the danger of him dying was past. So he has confidence in that regard, but also he's going to maintain a level of respect. And I think that that's a pretty good translation, um, just depending on, on how the Hebrew word is used in this context. Either way, what we do know is that Agag assumed the threat against his life was gone. The war was over. The king was no longer angry, so he wouldn't kill him in anger. He would have done that already if he was still angry. The celebration, the sacrifice has already happened. So if the sacrifice has already happened, then likely they're not going to sacrifice him to the God or whatever. And so he, he probably feels pretty good at this point. He's not too concerned for his life. But of course, he's not dealing with Saul anymore, is he? He's dealing with Samuel. And he's dealing with unfinished business as it, regard, as it relates to the word of the Lord. So verse 33 tells us, Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So he should have been, I guess, still fearful for his life. Samuel is going to finish the job that Saul would not. 
Saul wanted to keep the king for his honor, for his trophy, for whatever it might be. God said, you're supposed to destroy all the Amalekites. So Samuel says, we're going to finish this business. And he brings King Agag. And this is where we find out that King Agag was not just some innocent bystander here, okay? He was a man that had been very violent as well. And Samuel recognizes that by saying, your sword has slain women and children and made women childless. So now it's time for you, your mother, to be childless. And he cuts him into a bunch of pieces before the Lord. Um, Violent, yes. Definitive, yes. Um, He destroys King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and finishes the job that Saul had been sent to do. And this is it for Samuel and Saul. This is it for their interaction. Verses 34 and 35 say, Then Samuel went to Ramah, which was where he lived, And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. That's where he lived. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So remember that idea of the Lord repenting doesn't mean it was a mistake. It simply means he changed his plan. And his plan was no longer to use Saul. And that's a summary verse. It's a summary verse of everything that we'd seen in this chapter of the the repenting of the Lord that Saul would be king and a new king was going to come into the picture. But Samuel from this point on does not ever consult with Saul again until, um, we'll find it a little later, till after Samuel's dead and Saul consults him through a witch. Um, But until that point, and when we get there we'll talk about that, there is no interaction between them anymore. But Samuel is still mourning for Saul. He's, he's mourning because Saul made wrong choices. He's been rejected now as king. And Samuel loves Saul. And as a good spiritual leader should, there's no point where he was content with the choices Saul made. Even if he had to, he had to do what the Lord asked him to do. The Lord, he was rejected as king. He wouldn't go see Saul anymore. But you know, a good spiritual leader mourns over the poor decisions of those who, who they lead. And that's exactly what Samuel did. And so this ends the divinely blessed rule of Saul. He will still reign for many more years without the blessing of God, without the empowerment of God upon his ministry. But this day marks the beginning of the end. And from this point on, God will no longer go before Saul He will no longer fight Saul's battles. And very soon, the spiritual empowerment that was upon Saul for ministry will be lifted from him and will be placed upon another man, a man named David. Saul's ministry in Israel is nothing short of tragic. As I've talked with many folks over the past couple of weeks about the ministry of Saul, the word tragedy keeps coming up in my mind. It is a tragedy. Saul had so much advantage and he he yielded it for his personal pride he had every reason to obey and he chose not to anyway i was talking with a young lady at the jail this past week and i said you know one of the words that we often use in the spiritual context or as we think of of church and as we think of ministry is the word potential i i look out at this room and i see so much potential but at the same time that word there's something in me that does not like that word Because potential really is not what it's about, is it? Uh, It doesn't matter if you have potential. Saul had so much 
potential. And he took all of the potential that he had and he became self-serving, self-righteous, proud, and he lost everything that he should have had. He led his people in a direction that they should not have gone because for all of his potential, he didn't make right choices. And so that word potential really doesn't have a lot of meaning. Young people, most every young person in, uh, under the sound of my voice, almost all of you are believers. That I, I, I'm, I, I've validated, at least everyone that I'm seeing here, you are believers with, with the exception of maybe one or two. That means you do have so much potential. You're... you're if you talk to some of the folks in this room who were saved at a later time in their lives and wishing that they would have had some of those years back to serve the Lord, imagining what they could have done if they'd have had some of your, their youth like you have your youth, you've got so much potential, but really that doesn't, doesn't mean a thing. If you don't take what you've been given and use it for the Lord. And Saul is a tragedy. He's a warning of someone who has every opportunity to be successful spiritually and he doesn't do it as a leader Saul reflected the very worst qualities and when all of these qualities are combined they amount to this that he failed he failed as a leader because he failed to understand his divine responsibilities as a leader and that is where we're going to spend our time of application this morning understanding what biblical leadership is and the responsibilities that come with the job. And I'm going to lean heavily on the father-husband role of leadership and the mother-wife-child role of following this morning because that's the primary context. I'm also going to bridge the gap into church and into government and a little bit into employment. But those are, are uh, and they'll all be just as applicable. And you can, you can carry this over into any authority uh, leader position and any follower submitter position but the family is really where we're going to find this concept hit home with the with the majority of us so that's where i'm going to rest some more of my time this morning three points in our application first god has ordained biblical leadership as a matter of divine authority not personal capability second leadership brings with it divine accountability and third when leadership is usurped Yielded or ignored in any context, there will be negative consequences. All right, so we'll talk about these in turn. Number one, God has ordained biblical leadership as a manner, uh, or as a matter, excuse me, of divine authority, not personal capability. We spoke at the beginning of our time together of those three God ordained institutions family, church, and government. And in each of these institutions, we can find scriptural precedent that the leaders of these institutions are ordained by God and carry with them at least some measure of God-ordained authority within the realm that God has given them. We see this in the home, where the scriptures tell us that the husband is the God-ordained leader. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. The husband is the God-ordained leader in the home. Now, this does not mean that he's the most capable leader. 
This does not mean that he invariably has the equalities an effective leader has. Husbands, you may not think that you're a good leader. Wives, you may not think that your husband is a good leader. It doesn't matter. He is the God-ordained leader of the home. The moment you said, I do, you agreed to take upon yourself, husband, the divine responsibility of leading your wife. Wives, as I mentioned, you may not think your husband is a good leader. It doesn't matter. You may disagree with his choices. It doesn't matter. The moment you said, I do, God placed you under the authority of your husband. Case closed. That's what we see in Colossians. You can see it in Ephesians 5 as well. It's quite plainly stated in Scripture that the husband is the leader of the home. The same can be said for the parent-child relationship. Colossians 3, 20 and 21, we just continue here. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Parents, the moment you had children, you chose to take on a mantle of leadership. This doesn't mean you're the most capable leader. This doesn't mean you have all the qualities of a good leader but you are ordained by God to lead your children. The parents lead the children. The husband leads the wife, delegating to her those elements of child raising that he chooses to delegate while still maintaining ultimate authority and ultimate responsibility for his children. Parent, you may not think that you're a very good leader. It doesn't matter. You may not want to be a leader. It doesn't matter. The moment you had a child... God placed you in divine authority, gave you divine responsibility to lead your children. Children, you may not think your parents are good leaders. It doesn't matter. You may disagree with their choices. It doesn't matter. God has placed you into a family. He chose the family that you would be placed into. He ordained your parents and God expects you to submit yourself to them, to obey them. What about the church? Well, 1 Peter 5, verses 1-5 through 5 tells us this, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples or examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Here we see a command primarily unto the elders of the church that they would, that they would feed the flock of God and take oversight over the flock of God and not by um, constraint, but willingly. In other words, uh, it, it should not be a man constraining you or manipulating you or forcing you to follow him, but, it, but being a good example and then asking others to follow his example. In this context, Peter then tells the younger to submit to the elder. There's some debate about the meaning of younger here as to whether it just means young people versus old people in the church or whether it, it, it's got uh, a meaning having to do with subordinates to the elders of the church. And having just spoken within the context of the elders of the church, 
I think it's very clear that we can carry that over in, in the context to this younger and elder idea that the younger in the church are those that are not elders, those who are under the authority of the elders, those who have placed themselves under the authority of church leadership. You who have placed yourself under the authority of church leadership, submit yourself to them, is what First Peter tells us. No statement of worthiness to submit or capability of leadership, only obedience to God's ordained headship. And then we also see this in regard to government. Romans 13, 1 and 2, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Uh, We see definitively that when a, a government leader, and again, I've mentioned already that in our particular country, this is, we have a unique situation right now where our leaders are opposing the very founding documents that they're, that, that we have. And so basically our leaders are operating completely outside the law. And because they're operating outside of the law, the question rages, are we accountable as believers to the law or to the leaders? And that's a question that I can't answer today. But the, the structure, the government hierarchical structure, the, the principle still remains, does it not? That we are obligated in some form or fashion to a higher power that is civil government. And this is not because that our government, whatever ordained government we have, is the most capable or worthy, but because God has ordained it. And so we understand that God has ordained biblical leadership as a matter of divine authority, not necessarily personal capability. We live in a society, in a culture, as influenced by Satan, who is the father of lies, which is making every effort to confuse the principles of authority, aren't they? Isn't he? Confuse the principles of authority in every aspect, in the home, in the church, and in government. Beginning with the husband and wife, we live in a society and culture which says the husband and the wife are equal partners and share an equal role in the marriage. Now, we recognize the Bible does not call women inferior. First Peter says that women are the weaker vessel, meaning that they are, we would call them the more fragile, the more delicate, not to say that they are weaker, but it's like when you take your fine china out of the cabinet for a nice Sunday meal. You're going to be more careful with them because they're more expensive and they're more delicate and they're more important. And that is literally what First Peter says when it calls the woman the weaker vessel. The more delicate, the more honorable, the more worthy, the one to be cared for, the one to be nurtured, the one to be protected. But our society says, nope, 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 throw away all of that. And just do this equal partner thing. Well, that's not the way God designed it. We live in a society and culture that sees a leader husband as authoritarian, as misogynistic, patriarchal. Can you see what Satan is doing here? He's trying to strip away from society and culture God's design. And in doing so, strip away the natural blessings of conforming to God's design. Women, it's not always going to be easy for you to align yourself under the leadership of your husband. Maybe he makes bad decisions 
things you don't agree with. Maybe you would go in a different direction. But the Scriptures tell us that God has ordained the husband to be the leader in the home. Now, I'm not speaking here towards single mom, families, those sorts of things. Obviously, God makes provision to help those that, that where there's a, a different situation here. But we're talking about husband and wife in the home. God has ordained the husband to lead. And when we allow culture and society to reverse this, confuse this, muddy the waters, television shows do a great job at tearing down husbands and fathers, don't they? Movies do a great job at tearing down husbands and fathers. The, the typical sitcom family is the dad who goes to work, comes home, and then doesn't want to be bothered, doesn't want to see the kids. He, he couldn't even make a good decision if, if, if you ask him. He's, he's a bumbling blockhead. He just wants to, to sit down, drink his beer, and watch his football. The mom is the one who's holding the household together. She's making all the decisions. She's the one that kids go to when there's problems. She's the one that, that is, is kicking, kicking dad to get him going when, when things need to get going. Uh, she's the one that's always nagging him about what needs to be done. Kids... We haven't even gotten to kids yet in our, in our, in our, our consideration, but they're always right in sitcoms, right? The kids are always right. The parents are always wrong. The, the kids do uh, disobey and, and are validated in the end. Uh, the kids uh, um, have no respect for, for dad, and the only respect for mom is because mom is so authoritarian, and this is the sitcom family. And this is everything that the Bible says is wrong with a family. That, that's, what, that's what the sitcom family is. It's turning the family on its head. It's removing everything that God has designed to be blessed in a family context. Parents and children. We live in a society that insists that children lead the way. Children be the leaders because they are the future. That we as parents should wrap our lives around our children, cater to their whims, allow them to dictate the elements of our day, when in fact children are part of a family. Children should do what's best for the family. Children should follow their parents. Children should obey their parents in the Lord. Can you see what Satan has done here? He's stripping away the authority of the parents. He's stripping from society and culture God's design. And when God's design is stripped from culture, so too is God's blessing. Because God's blessing is intrinsically tied to His design. What about the church? We live in a society that has all but marginalized any authority in the church over lives. This shopping, uh, church shopping culture that we're in says, if I don't like your exercise of authority, I'm just going to go find a, a pastor whom I can walk over. In fear of false teachers or through some faulty understanding of the concept of the priesthood of the believer, Christians are convinced that they owe no allegiance to the body of believers. They know, owe no um, submission to the church or to its leaders. But if God has led us to a church and if God wants us in a church, then God has ordained authorities to lead you. Not to bless you, not to absolve your sin or anything like that, but to lead you, to help guide you spiritually, to help guide the church spiritually. And can you see how our independent mindset as it comes to church today, the church shopping mindset, 
is stripping from our lives this element of church accountability and authority whereby we are submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God where there is true accountability among the body of Christ. And the same can be said for government. I preached a message just after July 4th on submission and you can go back and listen to that one if you want to learn more about that. If we trust God this morning and we believe God's word this morning, then our disposition towards each of these authorities will rest not upon our perception of whether or not they're good at what they do, whether or not they are capable or whether or not they are worthy, but rather upon the reality that God has ordained leadership in our lives and we are going to submit ourselves to it. Children, it really doesn't matter if your parents are godly parents or not. Do you believe that God is capable of leading you through your parents, whether they make good decisions or not? Do you believe that God is capable of leading you as He said He would? He placed you into a family. He didn't make a mistake. He created you. Do you believe that He can care for you if you will do what the Word of God asks, which is submit yourself and obey your parents? Wife, it really doesn't matter if your husband makes good decisions or if he's a godly man. Do you believe that God is capable of leading you through Him as God said He would? Churchgoer, it really doesn't matter if you think I'm a capable leader in God. Do you believe that God is capable of leading you spiritually through me as He says He will? And citizen, it really doesn't matter. Government, in, in the realm of government, if we believe that our leaders are capable or godly, do we believe that God is able to lead us through those that He has placed over us as He said He would? And that's the issue. It's a faith issue, folks. It's an issue of, do I believe what God's Word says is true? God didn't condition children, obey your parents in the Lord unless you don't agree with them. He didn't say that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord as long as they're believers. He didn't say that either. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. He didn't say, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands unless they're no good, unless they're bad leaders, unless he's willing to let you take the reins. He didn't say that. He says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands in the Lord. No conditions. So God has ordained biblical leadership as a matter of divine authority. It's a faith issue, not personal capability. And let me just say this very quickly as we go on. If God has ordained you to authority, father, husband, mother, pastor, God has also, by His grace, enabled you to do it. If you'll trust Him. Where God leads, He enables. And if God has given you children, if God has given you a wife, if God has given me a congregation, then He will enable us to lead as He's asked us to. Second point, leadership brings with it divine accountability. Here's the thing about leadership. When you assume the mantle of leading others, you also assume the responsibility and the accountability that comes with that position. Fathers, you are responsible for what happens in your home. Not your wife, not your parents, not your church. You are responsible 
to lead your wife into spiritual success and care for her needs. You are responsible to lead your children into spiritual success and to care for their needs. That's why we are a non-age segregated church. That's why we don't split up our kids. Because far be it from me to ask you as fathers to have some Sunday school teacher being one of the supreme spiritual guides in your children's life. Fathers, you do it. Because you're going to stand before God and answer one day for it. Sunday school teacher is not going to stand before God and answer for your children. You're going to stand before God and answer for your children. So don't you want to have, have that control? If, if, if you're the one that's going to answer to God, don't you want to be the primary source? Don't you want to be the one that is doing the most leading and the most guiding because you're the one that's going to answer to God for it? One day when we all stand before God, fathers, your wife will not answer for the decisions you made in the home, even if you let her make them. Even if you say, I don't care, you lead this house. It doesn't matter. You're the one that's responsible, Father. You will answer for them because you've been given this responsibility. Society can turn leadership on its head, can say women should have equal authority in the marriage and family, but society's dictates don't change God's design. Husband and father spiritually this responsibility falls upon you the same can be said for as we mentioned father for pastor for government leader we may ignore our responsibilities but we cannot ignore the accountability that god has given us and leaders i i mentioned already that god where he leads he will provide saul is an example of this isn't he saul was not a, he, he was not leadership material. He was a big, good-looking guy. But when they went to announce him as king, where was he? He was hiding in the stuff. He was hidden away, ducking. He didn't think he could do it. He was afraid to do it. He's, he, he gets announced. People say, long live the king. He goes and the Spirit of the Lord falls upon him to do the work of the ministry. And it wasn't, the problem wasn't that God did not enable him. The problem is that he stopped following God and he started thinking he could do it himself. Father, mother, pastor, if you don't think you can do your job as leader, you're in the best place. You're in the best place possible. Because where you are weak, God can be strong through you. Where you don't think you've got it all together, that's when God can step in and get it all together for you. That's where if you will yield yourself to God, God can do for you what you can't do yourself. And that's the best place to be as a leader. A leader who is just taking the steps, trusting the Lord day by day, not thinking, I'm just going to do it my way because we've all found out how, how things work when we try to do it our way, right? I, I think probably every adult, at least in this room, has, has figured out what happens when we just think we can do it ourselves and try to go, out, go at it our own way. And this brings us to our third point as we close today. When leadership is usurped, yielded, or ignored in any context, there will be negative consequences. In any area of life where God's design is not followed, negative consequences are unavoidable. And this is not just about leadership. This is in any aspect of God's design. God has designed the husband and the wife to, main, to stay together. He has not designed divorce. And where there is divorce, there are negative consequences. God has designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. And when society tries to change the design of marriage, there will be negative 
consequences. And it's the same with money management. God has designed a way that we ought to live and give. And when we don't do it the way God has designed, there will be negative consequences. We see this also in regard to leadership, that when we don't do it the way God has designed it, when divine leadership is usurped or yielded or ignored, there will be negative consequences. Some lesser, some greater, but always there. Husband, when you yield your right to lead to your wife, it will not bring about God-honoring results. Now, I speak not about the unique, again, not about the unique dynamics of single parent homes, and God can certainly enable a single parent to fill the role that needs to be filled, but as we consider the, the, the biblically designed male-female two-parent home, God has not equipped the, li- the wife to lead. Husband, God has equipped you to lead. You have the God of the universe on your side, giving you the authority and divinely enabling you to do what He's asked you to do, if only you will. And He's not given that to the wife. And husband, we may ignore that responsibility. We may yield it. We may, whatever the case may be, we may lose that somehow, but we're not going to be able to yield the the accountability or responsibility. If you allow your wife to run the home and to run you, if you allow her to make those decisions, you will still answer for them and you will answer for your, your, your refusal to lead. And if you refuse to lead and you allow your wife or your parents or your church or anyone else to dictate the direction of your home, your home will be the one that suffers for it. Say, Pastor, what is that suffering? I can't tell you. It's different in every family. It's different in every home. But there will be negative consequences. So wives, every time we fail to submit to the authority of your husband, with the notable exception of when he asks you to disobey the word of God, you are walking out of step with God's word and therefore walking in disobedience to God. Every time you usurp his authority, you take upon yourself a responsibility that you are not called to bear. One day you will stand before God and you will not answer for the direction your husband took the family or the decisions he made, but you will stand before God and answer as to whether or not you submitted yourself to him as you were called to do. But pastor, he makes bad decisions. See, the greatest thing about that is that's not your problem. That's his problem and God's problem. Now, I say all of this with balance. There are many husbands who seek the advice of their wife who yield decisions to their wives that they, they seem or that they deem unessential. My wife comes up from time to time and asks me, do you, do, what, what picture should I hang on the wall? Or do you like that picture there? Or, or whatever the case may be. And nine times out of ten, I'll say, I don't care. Whatever you want to do with it, just go for it. I really have no eye for what hangs on the wall. I have no interest in what hangs on our walls. If I didn't have a wife, my walls would be white and bare. And that would be it. Uh, the, Maybe I'd put some shelves up and have cans of paint on them or something, but that would be about it because that's not really my interest. I'm not interested. So yes, she can have that and she knows that she can have that. And I have given her, I have delegated to her that, that area of the house and it's hers. And if I want to override it, I can certainly do so. But you know, nine times out of 10, I just don't really care. It's not wrong 
for me to yield that to her. It's not wrong for me to go up to my wife and say, hey, may I ask you some questions about what you think about this decision? What do you think we should do here? That's not wrong until I say, I don't want to make this decision. What You do it. Or expecting her to bear the burden of making those decisions. And wives, this is a wonderful situation for you. Society won't tell you this, but this is a really exciting and wonderful place for you to be. You live with one divine responsibility, and that responsibility is submission. You will answer to God for one divine responsibility, and that responsibility is submission. That means that when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to bear the burden of leading your family, of making these decisions, of wondering about what you should do financially as a family, about what you should do practically as a family, about whether you should go there or not go there, about, about those, anything. The decisions of the family aren't yours to bear. That's your husband. Your husband should carry around those responsibilities and then place them at the feet of the Lord, of course. But that's his responsibility to bear, not yours, wives. And that is a freeing proposition for you. That frees you from the burdens of leadership, from the consequences of decision-making, and allows you to simply live within the boundaries that your husband has set up for you and for your home. And to take leadership that you have not been delegated is to usurp your husband's authority. And it always comes with negative consequences. The same can be said of the relationship between the parents and the children. Parents, you have been given the divine responsibility of leading your children. Children are not equal partners in the home. They are subordinates in the home. Don't allow your children, parents, to run your home, to dictate your home. Don't let them dictate meal times. Don't let them dictate meal content. Don't let them dictate how your family operates. Parents, you are responsible to discipline your children, knowing that the testimony of Scripture is that he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes or regularly. Parents, whether you properly exercise your authority and your leadership or whether you yield or ignore it doesn't change the fact that one day you will stand before God and you will answer for the children that he has given you. Children, your parents have been given to you by God. Psalm 139, 14 and 15, David said, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. God knew you before you were born. He knew what you would become. He knew who you were. He formed you. He made no mistakes. He didn't make a mistake with how you look. He didn't make a mistake with how smart you are. He didn't make a mistake with your physical abilities. And he didn't make a mistake with, if I may put it this way, the womb he placed you in. He didn't make a mistake with your parents. You can trust this. God gave you the parents he wants you to have and he asks you to obey him through them. And maybe even sometimes in spite of them. And either way, what we understand from the Word of God is that your parents have the authority and your privilege is to submit yourself unto that authority in the name of the Lord. 
Parents, when we allow our children to usurp this authority, when we yield our authority, when we ignore the responsibilities of the authority that God has divinely given to us, we do not, nor indeed cannot, find in that circumstance blessing. I can ignore a check engine light in my car, but ignoring the light is not going to avoid the problem. It's just going to allow the problem to get worse. I can yield my responsibility to do my taxes to another person, but that doesn't change the fact that when the IRS audits them, it's me that they're looking towards and I'm the one that's responsible for my taxes, even if I delegate that responsibility to another. Likewise, when you as a follower in whatever capacity, override, overthrow, or ignore your God-given authority, you are reflecting a lack of faith in God that He can work through the leaders which He has given you. And if you will, and you will find that the consequences of these actions, while perhaps exactly what you intended, will never be what's best before God. And leaders, the focus is on you. You need to lead. This is a choice that you need to make. It isn't about whether you think you can lead. It's about the fact that God has ordained you to lead. It isn't about whether your followers respect you or agree with you. It's about God ordaining you to lead. Saul was a man who fell into this rut of fearing the people. And because he feared the people, he allowed them to take of the sheep and the oxen. Saul was a man who fell into several ruts of leadership. In 1 Samuel 13, he allowed the reaction of the people to scare him into a disobedient sacrifice. The people ran and hid, so I'm going to do a sacrifice that God has not let me do. In 1 Samuel 14, he allowed the resistance of the people to keep him from fulfilling his oath to the Lord. He said, if anyone eats this day, they die. Jonathan ate. Jonathan didn't die that day. Why? Because the people said, no, don't kill him. And he listened to the people. We say, well, yeah, Jonathan was a good guy. Yeah, but Saul disobeyed the oath that he made to the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 15, Saul feared the Lord. I mean, feared the people, not the Lord. He feared the people and he let them take of the oxen. He let them take of the sheep. And his failure to lead, his allowing the people to usurp his authority, him yielding his authority to the people on three different occasions in three different chapters, along with his attempts to lead outside of God's command, led to his utter ruin. And we mustn't think our family is beyond such consequences. We mustn't think our church is beyond such consequences. We mustn't think our government is beyond such consequences. God has ordained leadership. And he has ordained those who will submit to that leadership. And if we trust the Lord and we trust his word, then we can trust that if we do what God has asked us to do, whether as leaders or as followers, that God will make up the difference and that there will be blessing in it. Let's close in prayer.